Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're talking about schools, in particular when hate comes to school and why your school and others are still segregated. Hi. Hello. (laughs) So excited to have this conversation today because I think this is personal to both of us as we both have kids who are in school currently. And I think also because we've talked in the past about hate and the history of hate in the United States. So we've talked about the changes towards a less inclusive curriculum in some states and how history can be told differently due to bias, unconscious or not. But today in particular, we're talking about what happens when hate is perpetuated in a very real, very disturbing way in gathering places and in particular in schools. So my gut though, when you said that is like, no way, there's no hate perpetuated (laughs) in schools. And you're like, oh, how naive, right? I mean, I think that was the shocking thing about putting this together. Yeah, and well, and I think that I learned so much from reading, you know, even this first report that we're going to talk about, which was released this year, 2019, by the Southern Poverty Law Center, one of our faves, and it's called Hayden School. And it basically looked at the time period from November 2016 forward, which is basically since our presidential election in 2016. So three years ago, during and immediately after the presidential campaign, SPLC documented a surge of incidents involving racial slurs and symbols, bigotry, and the harassment of minority children in the nation's schools. They called this phenomenon the Trump effect because it appeared that children were emulating the racist, xenophobic, and coarse language Donald Trump was using on the campaign trail. Hmm. And my question there is, were kids actually watching what Donald Trump was saying on the campaign trail directly? Were they learning that from papers and news media that was playing in the background? Were they hearing it from parents who may have been repeating it? I don't know. Yeah, I think I have my gut feeling on this, but which is they weren't hearing it directly. They were repeating it from other sources, but I could be wrong. And I think it probably depends on the age of the kid, for example. So teachers told SPLC in two informal surveys that in many cases, Trump's name was invoked or his words parroted by children who are harassing others based on their race, their ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation. They noted a disturbing uptick in incidents involving swastikas, derogatory language, Nazi salutes, and Confederate flags. Teachers reported that children of color were worried for the safety of themselves and of their families. And I have to jump in here because, I mean, I've had personal, like, I've had our, my kids' friends who were really afraid. They truly, like, I know kids, I've heard stories of children who were really worried for themselves, whether their families were going to have to leave the country. What did this mean? There was definitely an undercurrent, and this is for elementary school kids. And for what it's worth, it's interesting you mentioned swastikas, because there was a very specific incident of a swastika being spray painted on a public elementary school in November 2016. So just in that period, you identified me, Sasha. But that was here in Denver, Colorado. And that led to the formation of the Brave Coalition, which is a nonprofit that came together to choose love over hate and advocacy over cynicism. I mean, they now, based on this, like swastika being painted, they have banded together and created events like community screenings of interesting films or having guests or discussions or book clubs, just sort of things that counteract the hate. And 
I guess I wanted to say that because no matter where the hate comes from, there's opportunity to step up on like a policy level. I guess you can influence the community from a big picture policy level or from a small community grassroots level. It's just what are you choosing to do? Just, not everything has to come from the top down and we can make change from any level. I think that's really important to emphasize. And I think that's, you know, such a theme of our conversations overall is that you can make change regardless of, you know, your role in sort of a an official level, right? I remember thinking back also to the election and during that period and my older son was, I guess, four at the time and he had seen Trump talking and and normally he doesn't get to see any screens. So I remember this because he said, mommy, do you think Trump likes us? And I look at my half black quarter Asian son, quarter white son. And I, oof, that was a tough parenting moment because I was in my head, I was like, "Mm, probably not. But how do you tell a four-year-old that the man who's going to stand up there purporting to represent him probably really doesn't care about him? That was one of those moments where I just had to take a deep breath. So that's interesting. Did he remember anything about the Obama presidency until that point? Was there any contrast in his four-year-old mind? Or was it just, was he so in the moment there and he asked that question? He recognized Obama as someone who looked like him. And I think that was really powerful for him, you know, and it is weird to me or amazing to me that both kids were born in the Obama presidency. So they were born into a country in which the president looked like them. And that doesn't happen for so many people out there. And then to have such a stark reversal, I think, was a contrast that he was picking up on even at four. Mm-hmm. That's interesting and sad. And I don't know how you came up with an answer for that, but well handled, no matter what. But I guess, so we were talking really generally right now. I mean, we mentioned general upticks and trends and language and awful stuff. But I think it's easy to be like, well, maybe that didn't really happen. And I think this is where we're going to go a little specific here and really be like, look, it's not just, there are really specific examples. And of course, it doesn't help that so many people have or maybe it does help, but cell phone cameras, right? All these instances can now be captured and shared on social media and on the news so much more quickly. And you do see them in the news media. You see slurs, graffiti, chants that go quickly from the four walls of a school out into the world. So that being said, several stories, I think, have caught people's eye. I mean, we can talk about these now, but in Wisconsin, a dozens actually of male high school students, almost all white, were seen giving a Nazi salute in a prom photo. In Idaho, elementary school staff dressed up as Mexicans and Trump's wall on Halloween. At an elite private school in New York City, a video went viral showing two sixth grade girls wearing blackface and swinging their arms around like apes. I think we got to have an episode on blackface sometime. And how the short answer of that one is don't ever do it, duh. And then... Yeah. And I think along those lines, there's been numerous stories about black students or Latinx athletes being taunted by white students. Yeah. The examples are what really drives it home for me, I think, because like you said, I think it's very easy to talk about these things in the abstract and to have that be refuted by, oh, a lot of times what is reported is overblown. But when you have surveys and studies like this done purposefully to point out what is actually happening. I think that's so powerful. And I think we found more examples too, even if the, you know, in case the ones that we just 
talked about, as horrific as they are, didn't sink in. In New York, a middle school student wrote in a textbook that he will lynch the black husband of a white teacher. In Illinois, white elementary students call black students apes and monkeys. In Minnesota, a middle school student tells a Latinx child that his mother should be in jail with all the illegal immigrants. In Massachusetts, this one in particular breaks my heart. A 10-year-old Muslim girl gets a note saying, you're a terrorist, I will kill you. In Oklahoma, a fifth grader draws a swastika and writes white power on his hand. I mean, and these are elementary school kids a lot of times or early middle school. And, you know, I feel like it would be so easy to be like, those are just the outliers. That doesn't happen that often. But I think it's actually the other way around. I actually, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but they're actually underreporting a lot of the hate that goes on. So I think those stories are just a tiny fraction of things that are really happening. And, and I am curious, right, especially because you just mentioned these are elementary school students in a lot of these cases. How many of them were done with real, I mean, obviously, if you're saying you're a terrorist, I will kill you. There is some hatred and ugly and anger. And how many of these, though, are ignorance and stupidity? And I guess my question is, does it even matter why these happen? Does intention matter when you're doing something that can hurt so many, hurt the recipient, I guess? And I think the answer that you and I came to through a lot of the research is that intention does not matter. And everybody, when we like did the research, said that impact is what matters. If the things you say have an impact and hurt the people, like your targets, then it doesn't matter whether you made the comments out of ignorance or whether you made them out of hatred. Right? I think I agree with that. I do too. I think it's it goes back to what we were talking about with microaggressions, right? Even if it's unconscious or it's done out of ignorance or stupidity, you don't look at sort of the intent of the person saying it, right? You look at the impact of the person, the recipient of the comment or the gesture or whatever's being done to them and measure it off of their reaction, not off of intent. So I agree. And I think the impact of hate is to hurt somebody. And now, as we said, it's so magnified when it does get reported, whether it's through traditional media or social media. It's not to say that it's easy to realize that or that something comes out of your mouth and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that that hurt somebody. It's that we need to continue to educate ourselves so we don't remain ignorant to the things that we can say that'll hurt people unwittingly. And that it's up to us to grow as human beings and continue to build strong communities. And just like if you accidentally hurt someone because you stepped on their toe and you go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like that's what we do as human beings. When you hurt someone by accident, you apologize, you learn from that and you're more careful next time. So the psychological aspect of it, there's an interesting study by Daniel Ames and Susan Fisk, where participants in the study read about a CEO who cost his employees part of their paychecks through a bad investment. In the two scenarios, they basically said, well, in one scenario, he intentionally wanted you employees to work harder for profits in the future. So intentionally made you know that choice. Or two, he simply made it a bad investment. It was an unfortunate mistake. And so... Of course, you're more to blame if you intentionally did something harmful, but participants saw the paycheck cut as more damaging to employees and their families in the former scenario, even though the employees suffered the exact same objective financial loss. In a series of similar studies, they showed over and over and over again that people are more motivated to assign blame when a harmful act is seen as intentional 
And so the motivation to basically build a case against the perpetrator leads them to actually perceive the end results as being more harmful. I mean, it's not surprising. If you're intended to be hateful, the impact is harder on you. Yes. And I think part of it is teaching awareness around that. And I was just thinking about this too, because with my, so I have two sons and the second son is now four. Apparently I'm stuck in this four-year-old phase, but (laughs) good luck. (laughs) Right. So I have this issue where I've been trying to teach my younger son that he needs to apologize for when he hurts someone unintentionally, like he knocks something over, you know, onto them or he, you know, throws a ball and, and hits them. And he seems to not, there's a gap between his understanding of hurting someone intentionally, like he tried to punch someone versus hitting someone accidentally with the ball and still needing to apologize for that that impact because his intent as he sees it was not to hurt them. So he, there's nothing for him to apologize for. And I think when you blow that up and look at it on an older level or even an adult level, it teaches us the psych or it reinforces the psychology behind why this is difficult and why it's important to understand the impact of our actions. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it's really not surprising. You try to do something hateful, it lands as like you're an even worse person and your impact is even more negative. But that's not to say that if the intent is not there, it doesn't have an impact on people. And so we need to continue to learn, right? Right. And going back to what you had said before about these incidents being underreported, I the Southern Poverty Law Center really went in depth in this back to that report. They had identified 821 school-based incidences of hate that were reported to the media in 2018. But by comparison, in their study, the K-12 educators who responded to a specific questionnaire that they passed out reported over 3,000 such incidents in the fall of 2018 alone. So three times as many Right. Than were in actually a, reported in the media. In a quarter of the time, yeah. And they said, they parsed it even further, saying that more than two-thirds of the close to 3,000 educators who responded to the questionnaire witnessed a hate or bias incident in their school during the fall of 2018. Fewer than 5% of the incidents witnessed by educators re- were actually reported in the news. Racism appeared to be the motivation behind most hate and bias incidents in school, accounting for 63% of incidents reported in the news and 33% of incidents reported by teachers. And of the incidents reported by educators, those involving racism and anti-Semitism were the most likely to be reported in the news media. Anti-Latinx and anti-LGBTQ incidents were the least likely. Interesting. What I also find disturbing is this next bit, is that most of the hate and bias incidents witnessed by educators were not addressed by school leaders. No one was disciplined in 57% of the instances. Nine times out of 10, administrators failed to denounce the bias and they failed to reaffirm school values. So could you imagine, you just mentioned your son and you're teaching him stuff. If your children do something asinine at home, right? They call you a name or hit their sibling. Like I've been there with my kids. What do you do? Do you like ignore them? Do you not discipline them? Or do you, you know, maybe you talked about it calmly and coolly if you're, if I'm well rested and and I feel like I'm in (laughs) my best self, I can respond in a constructive way. Or sometimes they do something ridiculous and I give them a freaking talking to, but I certainly don't let it go. And then be like, oh, they didn't know better. And they did it again. No, no, no problem. I'll just let them keep making these kind of 
mistakes in judgment all over again. You don't do that. Like you don't do that as a parent when you're raising your children. You address a problem. You address a hateful or hurtful behavior right away. So what on earth are we doing at schools here? If instances like this at a place where kids are spending somewhere between six to eight, sometimes 10 hours a day, if the kids are not being taught how to behave properly or having some sort of moral compass sort of guiding them, how on earth is this behavior possibly going to change? And I'm not at all for a moment suggesting that educators don't have their hands completely full and are overwhelmed. You know, they, they do a great job. It's just that these sorts of things, I think, really, really, really need to be addressed more clearly and immediately if we're going to change, especially what seems to be an uptick in hate over the last three years, as you said, based on this study. Yeah, I, mean, I think going back to past episodes where we've talked about how you can teach tolerance in kids as young as first grade, right? And so kids are able to understand and, you know, modify and change and be reflective of their behaviors and how they impact others at a very early age. So to continue to let behavior go is effectively sanctioning this behavior, right? And we don't give these kids a chance to feel shame and feel that they did do something wrong and that it should be addressed by glossing over it, right? We just continue to do that. And then we have a very volatile national situation like what we have now. That's interesting because then schools are not places where you're safe to learn. Because I think, I mean, most people, biologically speaking, if your brain is being triggered because you're not safe, you're higher thinking functions are shut down. Your brain is in fight or flight mode if you're fearful. You need to feel safe in order to learn. If we don't have a moral, is it a moral code? Even if we don't have discipline and guidance to teach children that certain hate things are not allowed, more and more students are not going to feel safe and they don't have a community and they're not supported by the adults who are responsible for their well-being. Yeah, because I think we think of schools sometimes as, you know, static institutions that are separate from what's going on in the larger world. And that's not the case. It's They're not immune from everything that's going on politically and socioeconomically. And in fact, what is happening now with these outbreaks of aggression aimed primarily at students of color and LGBTQ children reflects exactly what's going on outside of, you know, school confines. As we've discussed, hate crimes are rising. The president is a great example of, you know, engaging in childish taunting on social media. And he's sort of flaunting what has been considered to be normative behavior by generations of American leaders. And, you know, we have a growing white nationalist movement, and which has been spreading not only here, but internationally, right, with the recent elections throughout Europe. And so children are getting a lot of influences from very bigoted, racist viewpoints on many different levels. And didn't I read somewhere that in our country now, there will be more non-white students in schools than white students overall? Yeah. And so I think we talked about that. Yeah. Right. It, it's a very real thing where there is a whole shift, you know, and so this is not just a, a few students that we're talking about. This is going to be the majority, or if it's not already the majority of the students in our school, you know, it affects every single one of us who have children in the school system, basically is my point. And so 
I think what's interesting is what you dug up, the SPLC had a few suggestions for what schools can do. Yeah, I think to ensure that students are safe from harm, the SPLC recommends that educators must take vigorous, proactive measures, which is what we just discussed, basically, to counter prejudice and to promote equity and inclusiveness. And they must, educators, that is, must act swiftly and decisively to address all incidents of hate and bias when they happen with a model that emphasizes communication, empathy, reconciliation, and support to those who are harmed. So it doesn't address the person who said or did whatever. It also addresses the person who is the recipient of that behavior and really works on a much more socio-emotional level, really, to address and course correct in a way that both parties are going to come out of this stronger on various levels. Having had that hard conversation, basically, right? And seeing the face-to-face impact of the hurtful things that had on somebody else. I mean, I, as a parent, I want to take these on board, too, of just remembering when I hear kids say something that doesn't sit right, just immediately jumping in and being like, ah, do you know what you said? Are you even aware of what you said? And I think some of this can actually even apply to when I'm listening to music with the kids in the car and there's some inappropriate stuff or hateful stuff or words that should not be used. I could be like, did you hear that? And put it into context right away so they don't parrot that stuff that they hear on the playground. You're so right. I think that we have so many teaching moments throughout the day. And as a parent, it is, or as someone who cares for children or works with children, it's easy to sort of let those moments go because you're tired and, you know, there's a million things going on. And I get that because I am like queen of that. And but you're drinking a coffee right now. As we <laughs> I'm <record>. literally mainlining <laughs> caffeine as we're talking. But to have those discussions, to know that to show your kids that those discussions are not only okay, but they are necessary and to have those conversations and to get them to discuss and really start to analyze the meaning behind things and to get them to be critical thinkers early on really sets the stage for a world in which we can really appreciate everyone as opposed to walling literally or otherwise walling ourselves off and being fearful of the other, what we don't understand. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. But let's back up a sec, because we were talking about, and I think you were saying this too, schools are reflective of our population in the United States. They're not immune to what's going on. And are we actually a melting pot and very diverse, or are we not? And I am not the lawyer of the two of us, but I know that May 17th marked the 65th anniversary of the landmark Brown versus Board of Education. I didn't know that that happened in Kansas, by the way. I was like, oh, I just learned that as a new fact. But that got rid of the separate but equal standard, right? The quote, separate but equal standard, and effectively ended segregation, but did it. Now, I'll turn it over to the history buff. You know, I love history. So let's talk a little bit about what Brown v. Board of Education was about and a little bit of history after it. So after Reconstruction, as we've discussed in the past, our um, past podcast episodes, Southern states and municipalities were going through a whole bunch of change. So part of it was that they legally sanctioned a dual public school system where white students would attend one set of public schools and black students would attend an inferior set of schools. Remember that at this time, although slavery was abolished in air quotes, there were still very much separate systems in place for if you were white versus if you were black. 
And did they create them specifically as an inferior set of schools or they were just different? And because, right, like, was it consciously done that they were inferior? You just said that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a conscious, yeah, resources and otherwise. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. So often called the Jim Crow era, the United States was sort of under what the legal term is de jure segregation, but it basically means that the law supported the separation of black and white students. Jure as in jury, J-U-R-E, and then J-U-R-Y, is it related? Law? I mean, kind of, yes. Years of Latin. (laughs) Okay. You, I didn't take Latin, so you've got me there. Okay. You probably know better than I do <laughs> on that front. French is coming in real handy right now. So, <laughs> but after the Brown v. Board of Ed decision and subsequent rulings demanded the immediate desegregation of schools, so this legal formality after 1954 basically collapsed. So it meant that there was... So you didn't have segregation as a matter of law, basically. However, it didn't mean that segregation really went away. It just means that more recent forms of school segregation are supported by alternative mechanisms that are slightly more difficult to regulate through law. So this is known as de facto segregation or segregation that happens as a matter of fact. And according to a recent Times article, New York Times article, that is, more than half of the nation's school children are in racially concentrated districts where over 75% of students are either white or non-white. So that means that you're basically in a school district or a school in which everyone looks like you. There just aren't a lot of people who don't look like you. In addition, school districts are often segregated by income. The nexus of racial and economic segregation has intensified educational gaps between rich and poor students and between white students and students of color. And that sort of makes sense to me because based on our redlining episode, when we talked about how all of that, I mean, if you go back to the history of how the suburban neighborhoods or how neighborhoods were created and the lack of mortgages, you know, and then kids typically go to their local school. So if you're having neighborhoods that are segregated, then I see where the, by extension, the local neighborhood school concept means that the kids who look like that neighborhood would attend that school. And if neighborhoods are segregated, then that makes sense that schools are. Yeah, totally. De facto segregated, not de facto. <laughs> look at you all fancy. So there are studies of how segregation sort of moves through different parts of the country and how it sort of came back after it was gone. So one great case study of this that ProPublica published an article about is Central High School in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So Central High School in the late 70s was not just a renowned local high school. It was one of the South's signature integration success stories because in 1979, a federal judge ordered the merger of the city's two largely segregated high schools into one, So, which no one loved, but apparently worked out amazingly because within a few years, Central emerged as a powerhouse that snatched up national merit scholarships and math competition victories just as easily as it won all sorts of trophies in sports like football, track, and golf. However, in 2000, another federal judge reversed that, basically telling Tuscaloosa that the desegregation mandate that had been in place for about 20 years didn't need to be in place anymore because it had successfully achieved integration. So it could just manage that going forward, which, you know, works for no one. And when, why? I'm so curious why on earth that wound up back in court where they were like, actually, we can undo this now. Like who brought it up saying we don't want to have to be integrated? I'm just, 
that was my question at that point. I don't yeah. know the answer to that, but I find that interesting. It looks like the district really wanted the mandate gone. And I wonder why, too. But not surprisingly to, I think, either you or me, once this mandate was gone, Tuscaloosa's school sort of moved backwards in time. So that integrated high school is gone. There are now three smaller schools. Central is still the name of one of the schools, but that's about it. So it's now a struggling school serving the city's poorest part of the town, and it's 99% black. Predominantly white neighborhoods adjacent to Central have been gerrymandered into the attendance zones of other whiter schools. Uh, hold of. on, hold on. Explain gerrymandered, please. So basically, they have been redistricted. The lines have been redrawn so that if you're in a specific area, although you might be adjacent to another area, you're going to go to one school, which has been divided and set aside from the other school that you would otherwise be gone to. So redlining without the word red. Correct. Yes. Yes. And it often deals, gerrymandering is often more of a a political voting. Yeah. Okay. So, and I think we'll talk, gerrymandering is something that has been, been coming up a lot, especially with regards to the abortion issue. And I think maybe we'll be doing another podcast episode Mm -hmm. on that. Interesting. Yes. So I think that, in looking at Tuscaloosa's schools, to sum this up, they're not as starkly segregated as they were in 1954 when Brown v. Board, again, was decided. No all-white schools exist anymore. The city's white students generally attend schools with significant numbers of black students. But while segregation as it's practiced today may be different than it was 60 years ago, it's still there. In Tuscaloosa and elsewhere, it involves the removal and isolation of poor Black and Latino students in particular from everyone else. In Tuscaloosa today, and this is the part where I was like, what? Nearly one in three Black students attends a school that looks as if Brown v. Board never happened. That is interesting. I mean, okay, so I want to hear, so now I can picture that, right? These next set of stats are interesting to me. So you said basically, based on enrollment data from the National Center for Education Statistics from Tolerance.org, if black and white students were evenly distributed across public schools across the country, each student would attend a school that was about 50% white and 15% black. So that's what, if all things were magically fairy dusted equal, not equal, that's like the wrong term, but like if it was distributed evenly, that's 50% white, 15% black. The reality is startlingly different. The Civil Rights Project published a report in 2011. They found that the average black student attended a school that was 48.8% black and 27.6% white. So that's basically almost half black, right? As opposed to the school should be half white if it was evenly distributed according to population and census numbers. And on the flip side, the average white student attended a school that was 72% white and only 8.3% black. So again, white students- So interesting. In a majority white school with only 8.3% black. So there is like that, imagine that. Picture that in your head, right? And you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I think the numbers help. I see it sort of as a pie chart. And I think what's important to remember here is that it's not just numbers, really. It's the impact of those numbers. The separation of black students from majority white schools and the resources that accompany them. Because remember, the average black student is attending a school that is now 
at least 50% black, basically. That has real consequences for the lives of black students. In more racially mixed school districts, black students perform better in math and reading than their counterparts in school districts where black students are more isolated. Moreover, and this kind of goes back to redlining in a lot of ways, some majority black districts lack the resources necessary to offer a complete schedule of core academic courses. The U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights found, for example, that about 25% of schools with the highest percentage of Black and Latino students do not offer Algebra II, which seems to me to be a sort of basic high school class, and about a third of these schools do not offer chemistry, full stop. Absent these courses, the ability of students to attend college, let alone succeed, is stunted. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So the question that comes up, and that's a really challenging one, is what is the difference then between desegregation, which might be a superficial change in student demographics, versus sincere and internally motivated integration? So that has like a ton of other questions that come along with it. Like, A, did the South ever achieve true integration through federal orders and mandates, B, can this approach be more productive in the future? And C, basically, what are we going to do with the scenario that we have now? I mean, I think that's a great point, you know, to escape from something when you think about goal setting, right? I want to escape from something versus I want to focus on creating what we want to see, like the no versus, you know, what are you escaping from versus running towards? And you know, it's like the same as being like, either I want to lose weight, or I want to feel stronger. What do you not want versus what do you want? Do we really want to see schools that are integrated? Do we understand the upside for all students involved to have different experiences in one place? And time and again, researchers have documented that students exposure to other students who are different from themselves, and all the novelty, I guess, that comes from learning about something new and different, all of that exposure brings improved cognitive skills, critical thinking, problem solving. And I guess, yeah, it says for the first time since the founding of the Republic, a majority of public school K through 12 pupils in the United States are students of color. And if you go beyond the school district, most of the major employers, like people who are going to employ these students when we get they get to be adults, 96% of major employers say it's important that employees be comfortable working with colleagues, customers, and or clients from diverse cultural backgrounds. It makes sense. But you don't go from suddenly from like never being around people who don't look any like who look different than you to being totally comfortable with people who look different than you. The same way kids who are not told to don't hit your kid are not going to turn into suddenly miraculously well-behaved students, you know, help you know what I'm saying like Same way kids, like if they're not disciplined when they're children and they're being jerks when they're kids and they're never corrected or never told anything different, they're not suddenly going to be super responsible adults who are contributing positively to society without some sort of major shift, right? Like, (laughs) yes, completely. It's not just going to be some magical fairy dust that's sprinkled and suddenly you're going to be understanding and tolerant of everyone's differences if you never experienced that in the first place. And that's what leads to the fear of the other, right? The fear of differences, the wanting to be around people who look like you because that's what you're used to. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think from a personal standpoint, when I lived in major cities and internationally, I mean, that's how I sort of spent a lot of my years. And then for a while, I lived in a predominantly white area. And then I would, I could feel the difference. And then when I went back to like, I would see somebody who 
looked Asian or looked black. And I was just like, oh, like I noticed it in a different way than I did when I was living in a place where it was always there like that. And it feels more like home to me when there's a whole variety of shapes, colors, sizes, all of those things. But I could tell just within my own life experience that when I'm removed from that, I notice the difference in how I perceive people. So I don't know, kids are spending so much time in the schools. There's, let's go back to that, the school conversation. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that front. And this, you know, Sarah and I, we have talked about this next point a bunch. And I'm so curious to continue this conversation around this particular point, which is what is one mechanism that has supported de facto segregation? And that is private schools. So starting through history, as black students began to enter white public schools across the South, a vast network of private schools appeared seemingly overnight to offer outlets for white families seeking to escape the results of school desegregation. It's kind of like the white flight concept in schools, basically, with money. This private school system created a new type of dual school system, with most black students attending public schools and most white students attending private schools. So schools were technically desegregated, but far from integrated and very far from being equal. Totally. We have talked about this a lot because we're like, okay, how do we feel about You know, I used to live in a state that had really, really poor funding for the public school system. And I was like, do I send my kids to private school? How do I process that? Because it is so isolating. And I don't know, we, you and I have spoken for sure a lot about that. But what I find interesting is, yes, I understand that that was de facto segregation. But one of the articles that I pulled up from Forbes actually says that private schooling actually reached its peak around the time of Brown versus Board and has been on the decline. And I'll tell you like the interesting part that I didn't even think about, about why this happened. But basically, they said the share of US school aged children attending private elementary schools peaked during the post-war boom of the late 1950s and early 1960s, reaching 15% by 1958. So 15% of students were attending private schools in 1958. By the mid-70s, it had fallen to 10% and remained quite steady for the rest of the 20th century. During the subsequent 15 years, it drifted downward slowly and was slightly less than 9% in 2015. I mean, I get that there's a difference between 9 and 10%, but to me, that's a ballpark the same area. So they say that private schooling has declined, not increased, And they argue that that's because of the outsized role that parochial schools have played. So Catholic parochial schools used to have a proud tradition of working to help low-income children receive a better education. But with the economic model of the Catholic parochial schools, which relied upon priests and religious leanings to teach children, fewer and fewer people are choosing that as vocations. And so you're losing your staff and losing these choices. So they were arguing that it's been bad for inequality and economic mobility, not good. Like having the Catholic schooling used to be good for lower income students. Yeah, I'm so interested to find out more about this, because my large question about this, and one that you and I've discussed, is this decline of the private school and, you know, decline of the religious school, which for in this area, in the Bay Area, are two totally separate tracks in some ways. Is that uniform across the entire United States? Or has that is that decline greater in different areas and not like in the South, for example, where those schools were put in place specifically to sort of counteract the desegregation that was being forced upon people? That's something I would be super curious about. And I don't think you or I could find an answer to that. So if anyone's listening and they know, super curious to hear more about that. 
because I think in the Bay, we have sort of three tracks of schooling, the religious schooling, the private schools, and the public schools. And it's, those are distinct tracks and, but we don't have the history behind, you know, all of the sort of the reconstruction South behind it. Mm -hmm. I'd be so interested to hear about that. And I think that's where it's interesting when we talked about the private schools, not only then do you tend to have like racial homogeny, for lack of a better term, or at least not as many black or Latinx students, I think, right, is what we were saying. In the private schools, you also then have socioeconomic segregation because most of these schools are expensive private schools. And so you're raising children in a way that allows them to be insulated. And yet there is a huge benefit, I think, if the whole public school system were arranged like the private school system where they had smaller class sizes, where they had individualized learning, when they had involved parents, you know, that would be so ideal. So it's such a difficult and such a personal choice about where to send your children to school because all of us want what's best for our children. And sometimes people can afford it or can't afford it. And there's just so many things that go into thinking about how to send your children to school, which feels so different than generations ago where you just went to your neighborhood school and that was what you did. There was not this agonizing choice about how you're going to learn your ABCs and how not to hit your friend and some basic stuff and math and, and all the skills you need to grow up and become a decent human being and contributing adult. Well, I thought the research or the work that you found by Kimberly Goyette was really interesting about sort of the relationship between race and perceptions of school quality too. Yeah, she basically said one explanation relates to the perception of school quality that white people tend to perceive an inverse relationship between the quality of a school and the number of black students who attend it. Because I know we've had school conversations in our state where there's a lot of effort to increase the free and reduced lunch percentages, like the number of students who rely on free and reduced lunch. There's been huge pushes to increase that percentage uh, in each of the school districts. And some people push back, assuming, therefore, you're going to have a lot more brown and black people, kids in our school. And a lot of parents are pushing back. Not a lot. There has been pushback. And it's interesting the assumptions people make. First, why is the assumption about free and reduced lunch necessarily correlated with skin color? And why is that also associated with a lowering quality of your child's education if there is more diversity along socioeconomic or race lines? So I just wanted to, like, whatever the honest truth is, I just wanted to have that moment of like, just think about that for yourself. But Although concern about school quality is often given as the reason for leaving a school or moving to a new district, Kimberly Goyette basically says this explanation may be coded language masking a racialized motive. And so they find that in a study of school choices made by parents, Amanda Bancroft, who was a graduate student at Rice University, found that, quote, high status parents, so basically high socioeconomic class located in affluent neighborhoods, they often relied on informal suggestions about what constitutes a, quote, good school. And they didn't really draw on the publicly available school accountability data. They just sort of use their gut intuition about what means that it's a good school or not. And a lot of times that could have all of the underlying biases that are coming up for each of us when you make that kind of choice. Oh, I think that is so hard to hear and so important to think about. Definitely, you know, as a parent of two kids who will identify at some level as black. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. But given all of these, like, things that we've talked about, and at the beginning of the episode, 
If there are teachers who are participating in, or at the very least not responding to, or disciplining, or calling out episodes of hatred in the schools, and we have all these undercurrents of the struggles of integration versus undoing segregation, right? How are we going to really fully integrate schools and raise children who appreciate our differences in this country and create the self-safe, welcoming environments that children need in order to succeed, in order to learn, in order to thrive. It goes back to all of us. How do we do that? And we have to be aware of all these undercurrents, I think, in order to at least start questioning ourselves and our choices and what our role will be in changing that based on where we send our children to school even, and what we hold our teachers and administrators accountable to doing when episodes of hate inevitably rear their ugly heads. Completely, because I think it's so easy to look the other way or to sort of willful blindness, right, to go to push something to the side because it's inconvenient to deal with or it's uncomfortable to think about. And so I think you're so right. That question is something that we really need to ask ourselves. And we need to arm ourselves, though, with the education behind why that's so important. And so I think that our main action item, besides having that conversation with yourself to start, is to really know what your own school district looks like. And based on civil rights data released by the United States Department of Education, the nonprofit news organization ProPublica has built an interactive database to examine racial disparities in educational opportunities in school discipline. And this is pretty rad. In this activity, and basically they created, the New York Times has a link to a, basically a lesson plan with six different steps as to how you can talk to students about educational inequality and segregation as it exists today. So I thought that was amazing, but I think it's amazing for all of us to be able to go through these links and to see it. Um, So this activity basically allows you to look up your own school district or individual public or charter school to see how it compares with its counterparts. So basically you scroll down to this interactive map of the United States in this database, and then you start answering some questions. And you can go from there. So I think we'll post this link somewhere. Yeah, I want to look this up. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. So this link will be available. It's, again, the New York Times did this through ProPublica. And, you know, it counteracts a lot of our assumptions that segregation doesn't happen in our area de facto or not because, you know, we live in X or Y or Z. It's happening in this country. Yes, it's definitely happening. And I was going to say, so this was a longer than normal episode. We'd love to hear what you think about that. But if you're interested in this New York Times article or this ProPublica database, we will be sending that out via our email list. So if you want to be on that, visit our website at dearwhitewomen.com and you can sign up. We do send weekly emails with some of these links and things that we're using to learn ourselves. So you can find us there. You can always email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com with feedback. We love to hear from you. Oh, yeah. Yes. We actually had already recorded the, you know, we have episode ideas that come from you guys. We appreciate all of that. Yes. And social media, for sure, at, uh, handles usually at Dear White Women Podcast. And also for Twitter is... DWW Podcast. And that's us. Yes. Please come say hi. And we really enjoy all the feedback we've been getting so far. So thanks for all your support. Yes. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. 
Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. <laughs>